0: We're uh, in a series called Keeping Your Joy, The Heartfelt Theology of an Isolated Prisoner. Paul, writing from prison to the church in Philippi. We started this subject last week, counting everything lost for the sake of knowing Christ. The process of finding life's deepest joy. And uh, we read Philippians 3, the first 11 verses. And if you have your Bible, either open it up or turn it on or something. Here and at home, let's, let's uh, follow along as I read Philippians 3, 1 to 11. Now, there are texts in Philippians that just read, you know, they're just glorious in the way they flow. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ. This isn't a text like that, where it deals with a, a, an important subject, but it's not one that frequently would get read as, well, that's just one of the most beautiful texts in all the Bible. It's not a Psalm 23 kind of text, but it's an important text. So, Philippians 3, 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. So he's talking about joy. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. We talked about those words last Sunday morning. And then these words. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who... Worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself, now when he says confidence in the flesh, he doesn't mean flesh in the way that it typically gets used in some of Paul's writings as as sinfulness, expressions of sinful nature. Flesh just means circumcision and those outward fleshly acts of the old covenant. That's what he's talking about there put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. If this is the road you want to go down, Paul says. Five, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. If you're just talking about those outward expressions, he's not saying he's sinless, but blameless in terms of keeping those external points of the law. He said, I did all of that. Seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. And he's not mourning about it. He says, I count them as rubbish. That's quite a sentence. In order, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He's not talking about just an academic thing here. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law. He said, I was blameless on that kind of righteousness. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. That's a strange phrase. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. And last Sunday, we, we started out on our study of the process of finding life's deepest joy and how that process is rooted in counting everything else loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And I said there were three roots to this um, joy quest in the life of Paul. Three roots to it. And last Sunday night, we just studied, last Sunday morning, we studied one. If you want to find deepest joy in knowing Christ, you must set yourself to be against what is contrary to Christ. It's a hard truth. In addition to the Philippians text, we looked at Romans 12, 8, and 9, where Paul writes and says, let love be genuine. So it's a text about love. Love for God, love for others. Let love, let it be real, spiritual, genuine love. Well, how do you know if it is? Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. And and he ties it in. Ten, love one another. So this love is both vertical, love to God, love to people. And if you you really want to be a genuinely loving person, you have to be opposed to what is evil. If I'm going to love Christ, it isn't just a matter of giving him a hug or singing the right song or raising my hands. To love Christ is to hate what Christ hates. And to love brothers and sisters in Christ is to love them as Christ would love them. Rejoices in the truth. So that was the first first, uh, step on this joy quest that Paul talks about. It's a a strange one. It's It's not one that comes naturally that you just pick up by reflex. That... Joy comes from knowing Christ and loving Christ. And loving Christ means hating what he hates. And we would think that just makes you bitter and cynical. And Paul says, no, it makes you joyful. It's the surprise. There are two other, two other principles on this quest for joy. Let's pick them up now. Point number two, then, if that was point one. Religious devotion and moral performance... If it fails to exalt the greatness of Christ is a hindrance rather than a help in knowing God. Now that theme takes the majority of Paul's text. It's actually in verses 2 to 9. I know we just read it, but I want to go over these verses again because they're, again, they're not naturally inviting verses. So Philippians 3, 2. Look Look out for the for the dogs, he says. I'm going to change that color to that. You are okay with that? How many are okay if I go yellow instead of red? How many prefer red? I'm going yellow. Look out for the evildoers. And he's going to talk about what kind of evildoers he's talking about. He's not talking about bank robbers, muggers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about people who want to attach the old covenant, in this case, to knowing Christ. He says that's just evil. Those are evildoers. Three, for we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and, and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He seems pretty bold in that statement. Circumcised, the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law. Look at that, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ, be found, I love that, in him. Not just about him, in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. So, Paul, this text it, it 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 sets Paul's words in the verse in their proper context. That term "dogs," we think of it as name calling, and that's not what he means. He's talking about these, in this case, these Jewish legalists. And they knew that, that dogs was emblematic of what God had set off as unclean under the Old Covenant. And so, as they adhered to the laws, the regulations, the ceremonial laws that God set up under the Old Covenant, these people of God would look at outsiders... Those who weren't in the Old Covenant, they would be unclean. Dogs. They're not belittling their value as persons, but they're bluntly pointing out their alienation under the Old Covenant law of God. And that's why this became such a generic, all-inclusive, descriptive term of the Gentiles. People like us, under the Old Covenant, we just were outsiders, aliens, unclean if we were still under Old Covenant law. But the thing is, that's, that's not the, the point that was really stunning in this text. What, what should be shocking to all of Paul's readers is Paul isn't talking about the Gentiles in this text. If he were, every, all of his readers would have had no problem with it. Those who kept the ceremonial law of the Old Covenant... They would have nodded in agreement. All those aliens, all those outsiders who aren't part of God's covenant. The unclean. And then, and then Paul does something in this text that's totally unacceptable. He's applying those words, you can tell with all the references to circumcision and his past, to Hebrew of Hebrews. You can tell that when he uses that term, he's not talking about Gentiles, he's talking about Jews. People who were under the old covenant, who kept those laws. And Paul is pointing out that now that Christ has come, that kind of old covenant righteousness doesn't count. In fact, it's a hindrance, it's unclean, it's unacceptable. Vast portions of the community on this planet today would find that unacceptable. What Paul is saying in these verses. He flips the tables. Under the new covenant, as it's fulfilled in Christ, what's truly unclean, says Paul, is any devotion at all that ignores or supplements the redeeming, sanctifying work of Christ by the Spirit in the heart, to insist on any religious observance, in this case, the old covenant law, but to insist on any religious observance to supplement the work of Christ is unacceptable, unclean in God's eyes. Paul then gets a bit autobiographical. We read those verses about his own religious pedigree. He says he kind of outshined all of them, verses 4 through 6. And and then he makes that bold statement in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. That's the crucial verse. That's the crucial verse. We we have to let it say all that the words mean, or we might miss Paul's point. Paul's point is not that he has become indifferent to his former religious devotion. Like I was going down this road and I changed my mind and I'm following Christ. That was my preference. That was my choice. That's not what he's saying at all. Like he can, he can take his former religious life or leave it. That's not it at all. It's not even close to what Paul is saying. He, he means what he used to count as a plus in knowing God. What he, what he used to count as a help, an aid in his pursuit of God, he has now come to see as a minus. It's not just that it isn't helpful anymore it's that it's it's a hindrance it's a it's a loss we understand loss you used to have this in your investments a month ago and now you have a loss we know what that's like when he uses that word loss in verse 7 not gain but loss he means he means when you when you try to bring anything else in terms of a supplement, in terms of a, another object of religious attention and devotion to, to help you find God as an aid to what Christ has already accomplished on the cross. He says you're, you're blocking out what Christ has done. It's, it's a hindrance. It's hurting you. Most people don't recognize it, but what... Paul is describing for us in this story of his own life. It's it's the process of his own repentance. We I'm doing a series Sunday nights. We'll finish it next Sunday night on repentance. I think it's one of the most important things we've ever taught, the eight parts to it. We think of repenting for the bad things we have done. And we do it Mistakenly, but in church understanding, we think of repentance at the beginning of our Christian life. I repent when I got saved. Paul isn't talking about the bad things he did, he's talking about he's talking about what his life used to be at its religious best. He's talking about the way he spent his time and his very best moral and intellectual efforts in the construction of an attempt to please God. And he says, Now I have to repent of that. This was the process he had to repent of. Repentance means becoming divinely opposed to what used to enamor. It was turning from what he once considered best in life, not worst. I love the words of Karl Barth. He has a brilliant little commentary on Philippians, and he says this about these verses. He says, I quote, the repentance Paul describes here is nothing less than seeing the heights upon which I used to stand as now being abysmal, the assurance in which I used to live as utter lostness, the light I used to have as darkness, the plus itself changes into a minus. And then Paul gets to the very heart of the matter in that eighth verse. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and, and, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So now, now we're coming to the heart of Paul's surprising quest for joy. We're still talking about joy. This change of his orientation religiously, this this counting everything once important and precious as loss, it wasn't a one-time adjustment in Paul's life. It It was his settled state of affairs. Look at that eighth verse. He says, indeed, I count. Notice the present tense. He's still doing this. This is how he lives. Wasn't just on the road to Damascus. I count right now, daily. This is what Jesus meant when he said, you take up your cross daily, right? He's not talking about getting saved. He's talking about the way, the way you orient your life, the way you view things, how you process things. There's something so profound in that sentence. I pray you see it. Indeed, I count everything as loss, everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so what, he, what you see right there is there's this comparison. This is not Paul just being a, a negative, gloomy guy. He's discovered something, found something, and when he compares he compares the way he tried to please God before with what he has in Christ, it makes it easy for him to say, this is worthless. You only, you only know the true worth of something, anything, when you compare it with something else. If you cling to everything equally, it's because... It's because you don't know the worth of any one thing in particular. Paul didn't just know Christ was wonderful and good and gracious and loving and mighty. That's all true. But Paul didn't just know Christ was those things. He knew in his own experience the worth of Christ because he found Christ surpassed. The surpassing worth. Christ surpassed everything else he had previously considered great and wonderful and good. Notice carefully that this is the very word Paul uses in connection with his discovery of the greatness and worth of Christ. He says in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because... Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them. That's the mental processing. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And and it's those two words, in order. They're, They're timing words. They express a sequence i'm doing this in order that so i'm 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 studying hard tonight in order that i'll get a good mark on the exam that means the studying comes first right i'm limiting my intake of desserts in order that i can lose 5 pounds it's when you use words like in order that in order to You're expressing a process. This happens so that this can happen. So that's what Paul's doing here. Paul means to emphasize that this counting everything as loss, suffering the loss of all things. He's saying this comes first in sequence of knowing Christ or gaining Christ in verse 8. Now, forgive me, but that's... That's a very neglected emphasis. It's worlds apart from the commonly held notion of just accepting Christ. That's the way we've come to talk about it. You invite Jesus into your heart, right? That's how we say it. You accept Christ. And it's, it's, we get it. It's not bad. We know what we mean when we say those words. I'm not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with them. I'm simply saying it's very different from... I have counted the loss of all things in order that I may gain Christ. It's a little different. It's a little different. I'm just asking, might we be missing something here? That's the surprising truth number two. That in terms of knowing Christ, what comes first is the the flat out rejection of all that would replace Christ in my affections the way i use my time the way i use my money the kind of entertainment i let into my heart and in this case any other attempt at religious devotion there's all sorts of religions on the planet what what is paul saying well he's saying that you you can't you can't kind of accept those and and love jesus right so so there's this you count them as rubbish. Anything that would be a substitute has to be counted as rubbish or you can't know Christ. But it's not a negative thing. That's where the joy comes. On to the third insight on the quest for joy. Our lives are deepened in richness as we embrace the joy of suffering for the cause of christ i see that in verses 10 and 11. i want to make sure i show you that these i think are rooted right in paul's paul's sentences that i may know him so there's still the goal we want to know jesus right we want to know jesus that i may know him and the power we don't want it to be academic we want it to be living the power of his resurrection and may share his share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. We've got to figure out what that means. We're, we're not all going to be crucified on a cross for other people's sins. He can't mean that. Like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. It's interesting, if you scroll through your guide on your cable TV and try and find religious programming, you won't find this emphasized very much in any of the broadcasts. That's why it's so interesting. It's so interesting that Paul specifically states the purpose of the power of Christ's resurrection as it's experienced in our lives. It's to lead us into, into counting the cost Bearing the cross, paying the price gladly in a culture that pushes in the opposite direction. And it's, and it's the very first thing Paul mentions. After the power of Christ's resurrection is, is uh, suffering in Christ's name. That I may know him. See that in verse 10? Put your finger under those words. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And we all go, Amen! Praise God! And may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. And we go, well, wait a minute. (laughs) The meaning of suffering for Christ, we've already looked at. And it's best made clear in a text we've already studied, Philippians 1, 27 to 30. When someone asks you about taking up your cross... The kind of stuff we're talking about. We, we know it's a religious thing that we're, we're supposed to agree with. We sing about the cross and carrying the cross. Um, we, we talk about dying with Christ, right? We talk about, we talk about death to self and it's very hard when you have all of those phrases we we know there's something in them, but what exactly what exactly does Jesus mean when he invites me to take up my cross every day if i'm going to follow him what What exactly does it mean to to know him and and the fellowship of his suffering what are we taught- what kind of suffering do we participate in for Christ? I get it if i'm a missionary in 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 some uh, country where I'm, I'm put in prison for spreading the gospel. I, I get it. That's suffering for Christ. I, Paul, he's in a Roman prison because of Christ. Okay, I get that. But look at us. How do we put meaning in this suffering for Christ? Because it's, he says that's the way you get to know him. And I want to know him. So what does it mean? That's what this text is about. I think it explains it almost better than any other. Philippians 1, 27 to 30. We're almost finished. Only let your manner of life be, so we want it to be, worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are, here we go, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything of your Who would these people be? Do we have opponents? You're following Jesus, right? You're following Jesus. Do you have opponents? Do I have opponents? What's he talking about? This is a clear sign. So you're standing firm in face of your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now look, here's the same terminology that we're studying in the Philippians 3 text. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, we do that, but also, isn't that the same term? The fellowship of his sufferings, but also suffer for his sake. Okay, what's the suffering, Paul? Tell me. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now I still have. So what we're saying under this third point is our lives are deepened in richness as we embrace the joy of suffering for Christ. Now, what is suffering for Christ and how does it bring joy? Suffering for Christ, we had it defined by Paul and we have it defined by Jesus. Suffering for Christ is standing true to him in a culture that doesn't like you standing true to Christ. That's it. So suffering for Christ isn't my arthritis in my hand. It's not the sore neck. It's not migraines. It's not that. Suffering for Christ, for Christ, not just suffering as a Christian. You can can experience sickness and suffer as a Christian without getting bitter and discouraged and trusting in Jesus. That's true. But suffering for Christ, that's something different. Suffering for Christ is when the culture says, that's unacceptable. What Jesus said and what you believe, that's unacceptable. And, and we're not going to tolerate that kind of thinking in our society. And there you are. What are you going to do? That's what he's talking about. And, and he says, suffering for Christ, you pay the price, but ultimately it becomes real in your heart and you find your deepest joy in the Lord. Whereas, if you have a belief in Christ and you kind of try and hold on to the fact that, well, I'm a Christian, but at every point where the, where, where the peer pressure of the culture wants to modify your beliefs, if at every point you cave in, you'll know in your heart, there's no joy there because you'll know in your heart that you're a fraud. How will the world around us see that we love Jesus? And that's not the question. The question is, how will the world around us see that we love Jesus more than we love anything else? How will they see, 3.8, that Christ is the surpassing worth of everything else? And there's only one way that can happen one way that can happen they will watch they will watch what I'm joyfully willing to lose for Christ they will watch to see what happens when following the call of Christ means losing a dear friendship or missing a good promotion or a chunk of material wealth they will watch to see if I bend under the pressure of my peers will Daniel bow to the idol when everyone else bows to the idol on cue or will you Take up the cross. Right? And follow Jesus. Now, with the link with Paul's theme of abounding, resilient joy starts to become clear. Suffering for the cause of Christ brings joy because it brings fruit for Christ's kingdom. We aren't just consumers who say we believe in Jesus. We found what finally matters eternally. What about these difficult words, though? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering. Share. Share. In his sufferings. Jesus was here. And because of what he said. And what he did. They killed Jesus. Becoming. So that's this. Becoming like him in his death. But what's this phrase mean? That by any means possible. I may attain. To the resurrection from the dead. Does Paul mean that he has questions. About whether the resurrection is certain or not. Does, does he mean he's not sure he's going to make it. Does he mean he has doubts about all of it? And no, that's not it. He, he means he still strives and wants to keep striving to make sure he lives his present life constantly willing to demonstrate the surpassing value of Christ and that eternal destination. He wants to keep that at the center of his heart. He doesn't want to take it for granted. He wants to labor constantly in that direction. Maybe he says it most clearly here in our last text. Same writer, Paul. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. I want to show you that this, what we're talking about, this taking up the cross and suffering for the cause of Christ and finding that it's the ultimate source of joy, I want to show you that it's not just Paul having a bad day in Philippians 3, that this is all through the New Testament. It's a theme, not an isolated statement. So Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. Provided, same thing, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Understandably, the verse we usually quote is just verse 16. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit, and we talk about it like it's some kind of a standalone verse, but it isn't. It doesn't stand by itself. It's unbreakably linked to verse 17. Our lives participate in Christ's power and resurrection, not lightly and not automatically. We demonstrate we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ by our willingness to joyfully suffer all things, whatever may come our way, as paying the price for being devoted to Christ in a culture like ours. And we find that ultimately, that's where the reality of faith gets expressed, the joy of faith gets deepened, and the world starts to see not just our belief about Christ, but they start to see the surpassing greatness of Christ. And everyone said, Let's pray. It's quite a thing that we are fellow heirs with Christ. The inheritance of Christ. Ascended to the right hand of the Father. Risen and reigning Lord. his risen body from the grave, that we're heirs with Christ. He has provided that for us. We share in Christ's inheritance. Make us willing, Lord, to follow as Christ, as Christ despised the suffering and the ridicule. May may we find ourselves For the joy of our Lord, taking up our cross daily, so that the world will see not just what we believe doctrinally, but the preciousness of Christ as we count everything else rubbish for the sake of knowing him. In your name we pray, amen, amen.